Welcome to Movement Memos, a truth out podcast about organizing, solidarity, and the work of making change. I'm your host, writer and organizer, Kelly Hayes. Today, we are going to take another look at the attacks that are currently unfolding against trans people in the United States. We will be hearing again from our friend Chase Strangio, an attorney and trans rights activist who will offer us some updates and analysis on how attacks against trans youth are progressing, how we should interpret these events, and how we can protect and defend trans youth in this moment. So why do we keep hitting this topic so hard? For one, the media is neglecting this issue terribly, and so are liberals and most of the left. We have a nightmare scenario unfolding in real time, and it is being invisibilized by the corporate press. Federal intervention appears unlikely, given that, with the midterms looming, Democratic leaders seem too worried about offending centrist voters to risk defending anyone's humanity. We are also faced with a rising tolerance for preventable mass death, and in some circles, a waning desire to fight for the well-being of others. Trans people, in particular, are being left behind by most liberals and leftists, even as attacks on trans rights and lives become the moral battering ram of a new fascist era. As I discussed with Shane Burley last week, all of these attacks on trans people are part of a larger fascistic agenda. It appears to be lost on many cis people who have largely failed to challenge attacks on trans people that they will not be spared from all the places this nightmare ultimately goes. As Audrey Lord warned us, your silence will not protect you. First, I want to ground us in the reality of the moment, because unless you follow this issue in an intentional way, you might not have a sense of what trans advocates have been dealing with over the last couple of months and years. Chase Strangio has been on the front lines of legal battles to stop some of these violent and dehumanizing laws. I feel like everything in relation to the law and the way in which the law is being used to hurt people is changing very rapidly. And to an extent, that's always true. You know, the law adapts to be violent and it is a violent system. And so, you know, I don't want to act like this is totally unique to this moment. I think that what I've been experiencing, though, as an, as an advocate in trans justice movements and as a lawyer and a person who tries to utilize uh, strategies of resistance within the legal system, recognizing their limitations, is that we are in a particularly precarious and violent time. And so a number of different things have happened. Um, we've continued to see states push anti-trans bills very successfully. You know, we're in a situation now where, you know, we have three states that have banned health care for trans minors in different ways. And all three of those states faithfully have had those policies in two cases, their laws, in one case, an executive order and directive enjoined in court. And we've had states pass bathroom bans or continuing to have states pass sports bans. So all of that is continuing to escalate. And then, of course, this is coinciding with the elite Justice Alito opinion in Dobbs, which is the case that is, you know, poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. And then, of course, just the continued sort of way in which the public discourse is devolving to sort of 
tee up, I think, you know, the expansion of state power in such ways that's going to continue to erode people's uh, bodily autonomy and self-determination. So if so many things are happening at once, it's hard to even tease out what has happened on what timeline because everything everywhere all at once is sort of how it feels. And that is very much in the tempo of 2022. Right-wing efforts to spread a hoax that the school shooter at Robb Elementary School was a trans person are indicative of the escalation Chase describes. A group of people who have been depicted as posing a looming threat to children were now being depicted as having massacred children. Even though the claims were debunked almost as soon as they emerged, the hoax is still circulating and will no doubt become part of the nebulous configuration of inconsistent lore, conspiracy theories, and misinformation that serve as a reality substitute for the majority of the right. The unreality that many Republicans inhabit cannot be fact-checked away, because fascist narratives do not negotiate with reality. Fascist narratives barrel over and crowd out facts, eclipsing reality. Right-wingers have cast the idea of a trans mass shooter into the popular imagination during a moment of profound fear and grief on the heels of hundreds of legislative bills that are supposedly aimed at protecting women and girls from the actions and machinations of trans people. This kind of propaganda that depicts a looming threat as having become an active, rampaging, child-killing threat is a clear call to violence against trans people. To me, the fact that a congressman promoted this hoax really drives home the severity of the situation. What happened is in the wake of the Texas school shooting, there were immediately right-wing conspiracy theories that were not even theories, they were sort of deliberately aimed narrative building online that the shooter was trans and innocent trans people were having their images shared and people were claiming that it was the person who uh, had perpetrated this awful shooting. And it really sort of fits with this moment of situating trans people as sort of the monstrous symbol of the collapse of society in different ways. And so it's sort of what we hear in the so-called groomer discourse of trans people and now LGBTQ people generally are out here uh, grooming your children, trying to make them trans, trying to sexualize them. And that, you know, of course, is a way to legitimize violence against people. And sort of these narratives are very deliberate. Um, And so we have that happening, this groomer discourse, and then it is exactly part of what we saw in the wake of the shooting, where you have this mass violent event, and immediately uh, the image of a trans person is invoked as the cause of the violence, even though it's not tethered to reality at all, much like in the groomer discourse, which is also not tethered to reality at all. And instead, what it's tethered to is a very strategic ideological imperative to legitimize mass violence against trans people. And so uh, I think, unfortunately, that is very much where we are right now. And it is 
you know, resulting in lots of different forms of violence against trans communities, which are, of course, already very prevalent um, and have been for many, many forever, actually many years slash forever. And, and in the wake of the, you know, circulation of this image, the reports have been that multiple people have been harassed or assaulted and accused of being the uh, shooter. And I think that it is a sign of sort of how much we can expect this discourse to escalate and how much danger trans people are in, both in sort of a, like a interpersonal danger, of course, but then also in a, a sort of existential danger in the sense that like there is an imperative that we are seeing to eliminate trans life. And this is all a part of that. In a since-deleted tweet, Arizona Congressman Mark Paul Gosser characterized the Texas school shooter as a transsexual, leftist, illegal alien. By invoking border politics while attempting to depict the shooter as trans, Gosser completed the vilification of two groups that are major targets of right-wing violence, legislatively and otherwise. Cultivating a disregard for suffering is going to be fundamental to any capitalist system as we move forward in this era of drastic inequity and catastrophe. But for the Republicans, the goal is not simply to cultivate an indifference to extreme and routine acts of violence against targeted groups, but also to satisfy an enthusiasm for that violence. The fascist movement that has propelled this era of the Republican project demands an outlet for its frenzied energy. As Paxton wrote, fascist movements crave violence against enemies and the purification of blood and culture. Once a charismatic leader has promised such fulfillment, fascist regimes have to produce their own version of what Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky called a permanent revolution. Paxton wrote that fascist regimes could not survive without that headlong, inebriating rush forward, without an ever-mounting spiral of ever-more-daring challenges. Fascist regimes risk decaying into something resembling a tepid authoritarianism. While Republican elites would no doubt be thrilled with something resembling a tepid authoritarianism, they would lose their base, who have now spent years reveling in fantasies of victimhood and redemption. They have immersed themselves in a mythos that says they have been robbed and humiliated by a society that is going off the rails. In that society, some people are cast as villains who either take what belongs to the wronged populace or whose very existence and way of being in the world undermines decency and stability. Fascist movements want constant attacks against enemies, either internal or external, and they want to be part of those attacks. The evangelicals of the 1970s understood that pleas for unborn lives were more palatable than racism. Today's Republican elite similarly understands that it cannot market the mythology of QAnon, that Democratic leaders are part of a pedophilic sex cult and eat babies. But it can play on the same passions by ramping up and centralizing its attacks on trans people. In their fascist narratives, facts and details are of secondary importance. What matters most is what feelings are being provoked or affirmed, and whether the movement's faith in their leadership is being affirmed. 
As we saw under the Trump administration, a government can fail to deliver on nearly all of its promises, but still enjoy the celebration of a fascist movement if the state offers up violence that its followers experience as redemptive. The GOP does not plan on doing anything to make anyone's life better, and it's not really even pretending to offer any plans that would do that. But it is promising white people, cis men, and cis women who feel threatened by trans women a form of social retribution. As Melissa Gira Grant recently captured in her piece, The Mothers Leading the Battle Against Trans Student Athletes, mothers of cis teenagers who are fighting to exclude trans youth from girls' sports teams have invoked rhetoric deployed by white mothers who fought against integration of all white schools. Operating under the cover of feminism, mothers crusading for the exclusion of trans youth claim they are defending their daughters' rights and futures and the integrity of women's sports. Supported by groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom that have pivoted from attacks on gay rights to attacks on trans people, Gira writes that the idea of protecting girls is meant to win, and with it, they can fuel a stigmatizing moral panic about trans people. Melissa Gira Grant's done a lot of really important reporting, sort of situating the attacks on trans youth in a long history of sort of in particular white women and white mothers building out a discourse of protectionism, you know, which is part of sort of the way in which, you know, white women in particular have been central to mechanisms of white supremacy in like sort of structural political sense even when cast as sort of outside of typical power structures. And and sort of there's this long history of white womanhood being situated as that which needs protecting, which builds some of the most violent mechanisms of state power and can sort of trace that through, you know, the entire structural formation of the United States as a a nation state where you have protecting white women being used in the service of mass violence against indigenous communities, against enslaved communities to perpetuate lynchings, to fuel mass incarceration, to propagate wars globally. And so this is obviously part of a state building project with a white supremacist orientation. And that's sort of, you have to understand that history in order to understand any policymaking that happens, and particularly when protecting women and children is invoked as a goal in the United States, because it's always tied to whiteness and it's always tied to the preservation of of whiteness as a, a sort of coherent political structure, which is inextricable from white supremacy. And in the context of anti-trans bills, this is very much part of the continuation of that legacy, wherein you have in particular, a lot of cis white girls and their white parents, in particular their white mothers, sort of evoking this idea that their daughters are being threatened by this monstrous other that needs to be controlled and removed and the state needs to step in as as protector. And I think that one of the ways in which the anti-trans sports discourse really took off in the U.S. was through these attacks in Connecticut on these two young Black girls who are trans, 
who were runners and you had sort of a number of cis white girls who ended up going on Fox News and and being a part of a right-wing media uh, circus, I would say, in, in order to cast their womanhood as as being under assault from these, you know, these young Black girls. And, and so we can't understand the discourse of anti-transness outside the structures of white supremacy because there is no such thing as sort of an understanding of protecting women and girls in the U.S. without it being tied to protecting whiteness and white supremacy. And that is very much part of what we're seeing here. The GOP has quite wisely created active roles for its fascist white supremacist supporters. From legally sanctioning poll-watching efforts that appear to be flimsy cover for harassment and voter suppression, to functionally deputizing citizens to participate in vigilante surveillance, and even legitimizing vehicular attacks on protesters, the GOP has gone out of its way to accommodate everyday people who want to play a role in the policing and persecution of marginalized people. In his now-famous piece, The Cruelty is the Point, journalist Adam Serwer referred to photos of the lynching of Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith in Indiana in 1930. He talked about the smiling faces in the crowd, writing, They were human beings, people who took immense pleasure in the utter cruelty of torturing others to death. Their cruelty made them feel good. It made them feel proud. It made them feel happy. And it made them feel closer to one another. I think it's important to remember that Adolf Hitler took inspiration from Jim Crow, as well as Native Genocide. The cruelty of racist Americans and the fellowship and pride they take in redemptive violence has always been fascistic, as have certain elements of our society, such as the prison industrial complex. What we are looking at now is a scale-up to meet the emotional needs of a rageful movement. And as Shane Burley explained last week, policing reproductive autonomy will not be enough. The Republicans will be relentless on that front but they are also poised to topple Roe. So the crusade to end abortion will no longer be the profitable, energetic setterpiece that it once was for the Republicans. But fighting to save traditional sex and gender norms, that is a threat they can depict as imminent for as long as trans people exist. Given these realities, popular efforts to categorize trans rights as a culture war issue, somehow removed from life and death matters of governance are both dangerous and deceptive. I have truly never understood the culture war discourse as anything other uh, than some sort of media narrative to minimize and sort of invisibilize structural power everything and nothing are culture wars all at once. Like we are constantly having fights over sort of who can live and and die. That is the nature of of politics. And that is inextricable from all of the things that we might understand to be culture and cultural norms. And so, you know, every conversation about gun control or foreign policy or taxation or housing, I mean, 
those are culture wars. It's a conversation about well, so who is centered in our understanding of our ideological and cultural norms in this country. And then at the same time, you know, because of how it's framed, then almost, you know, nothing is a culture war if a culture war is defined as sort of that's that which is outside of the dominant political conversations of any moment and used, you know, solely and exclusively to galvanize some sort of political base because nothing is nothing is marginal. <laughs> Everything is being done in the service of something central. And I I really am disinclined to ever engage in in a conversation about things as being a, you know, quote unquote culture where I don't know what it means. I am very much skeptical that it's a useful frame. I think we should be explicit about how all of these structures are connected and that we are having social, political, cultural dialogues at all times that are constituting our political systems and structures and ultimately determining who, who lives and dies, who has access to material survival opportunities and who doesn't. And none of those things are sort of haphazard or accidental. This is all very deliberate. This is part of our political structure. And people's bodies and existence are deliberately weaponized, are deliberately situated inside or outside some aspects of political discourse in order to serve structural power. And so when we say something is a culture war, usually that is some sort of media frame that is often complicit in or in the service of perpetuating some structural harm. The eschatology of QAnon involves the storm, or a great political reckoning. QAnon adherents have long professed that during the storm, judgment will be rendered against liberals and the nuclear family restored, while Democratic elites, who are all members of a satanic, child molesting, and cannibalizing cult, will be exposed and punished. Many believed these events would transpire before Joe Biden took office by way of Donald Trump initiating martial law. When this did not happen, rather than dissipating, the mythology continued to shapeshift. QAnon imagery was prominent at the Capitol on January 6th. Anti-Semitic conspiracy theories are central to QAnon's mythology, and there are clear parallels between QAnon's beliefs about democratic cannibalism and so-called blood libel, which began in 1144 when Christian leaders accused Jewish people of killing a Christian child for cannibalistic purposes. Accusations about Jewish people committing cannibalism would continue into the 20th century, resulting in many acts of violence against Jewish people, including false prosecutions. While the anti-trans movement may not seem as outlandish as claims of cannibalism, it is likewise a blur of hysteria and bizarre allegations of imagined harm. For example, an anti-trans blog post that has been widely celebrated and cited in the UK called Pronouns are Rohypnol asserts that pronouns are like Rohypnol to your brain's defenses. The post's author defends her comparison between being asked to use a trans person's pronouns with having a date rape drug slipped in her drink by saying, using pronouns alters your attention, your speed of processing, your automaticity. It slows you down, confuses you, 
makes you less reactive. The anti-trans movement in the UK gained momentum earlier than similar efforts in the United States, in part because trans people in the US used to have a lot more backup. But the out-of-control state of transphobia in the UK presents a frightening picture of where the U.S. is headed. So how have transness and pronouns provoked so much hysteria? Examining other moral panics about children in the U.S. can offer some clues. As Ali Braylon pointed out in his 2019 piece, Why Are Right-Wing Conspiracies So Obsessed with Pedophilia?, Moral panics about Satanism and pedophilia over the last 50 years have reflected anxieties over various forms of social progress. Anxieties that women in the workplace were destroying the nuclear family and placing children at risk helped kill the McMartin case in the 1980s, during which over 300 false charges were filed against seven daycare center employees who prosecutors alleged were running a satanic pedophilic sex ring. Daycare centers had been demonized heavily by Republicans. And in a panicked environment, one false allegation against one teacher quickly spiraled into a state of hysteria around potential sex abuse in daycare settings. As Brayland wrote, however flimsy its premises, the case whipped up a national panic. In 1985, a teacher's aide in Massachusetts was wrongly convicted of molesting three, four, and five-year-old boys and girls. The prosecutor had told the jury that a gay man working in a daycare was like a chocoholic in a candy store. Around that time, employees at Bronx daycare centers were arrested for allegedly sexually abusing children. Five men were sentenced before all ultimately saw their convictions overturned. It's also worth noting that Republican rhetoric about abortion also fueled an epidemic of attacks against abortion providers during that same decade. Violence is not merely a side effect of right-wing politics. It animates right-wing politics. The Republicans have capitalized on the same energies that fueled Pizzagate and QAnon by placing an obsession with trans people at the center of their alarmist agenda. In the last episode of Movement Memos, I talked about how it was the end of segregation rather than Roe v. Wade that led to the electoral activation of evangelical leaders in the 1970s. But racism had become a harder sell in society at large, so to build political power, evangelicals made saving unborn lives their battle cry. We can see a similar opportunistic shift across time with regard to the targeting of queer people and trans people. When I was growing up in the 90s, the idea that gay people could turn impressionable young people gay or that young queer people may have simply been confused by bad influences, was wholly mainstream. Fear-mongering around the threat gay people supposedly pose to straight people in bathrooms and in locker rooms, or merely by being openly queer in the presence of children, was everywhere. But in the early 2000s, this kind of rhetoric became less palatable to the broader public as the gay community made various social gains including growing support for gay marriage. More and more people found it fathomable that gay people could live within the conventions of the mainstream. And even if they did not wholly approve, the normalized presence of gay people in public life made them a less effective boogeyman for the GOP. The demand embedded in the chant, we're here, we're queer, get used to it, was realized. We were there, and people had, in fact, 
gotten used to it. Sociologist Amy L. Stone has written about popular depictions of gay and trans people as dangerous, pedophilic strangers, saying, Challengers make the most overt, deleterious arguments about harm to children when new groups initially advocate for legal rights and access to new spaces. As marginalized groups become more familiar and less strange, challengers make covert claims about these groups, as stranger danger claims have waning cultural and political resonance. In the 2000s, Stone documented an almost total shift from the religious right, from its messaging about gay teachers and Boy Scouts corrupting children, to rhetoric targeting trans women and depicting trans people as a threat to cis women and to children. Now, I want to circle back to what I was saying earlier about the parallels between white mothers who fought the integration of schools and cis mothers who are fighting to exclude trans children from sports. As I discussed with Shane Burley last week, evangelical leaders were not politically activated as a force for the Republican Party by Roe v. Wade, as many contend, but rather by financial pressure on religious schools to integrate. When religious schools started losing their tax-exempt status for being all white, the political power of evangelicals came into play, and the anti-abortion movement as we know it was born. I want us to think about the continuity of all of these attacks and how moral panics about the safety of children always come back to issues of power, purity, and control. The same is true of right-wing concerns about the unborn. If we fail to understand the links between these attacks, our movements will likewise lack continuity and we will not be able to adequately defend ourselves. I don't think we can understand attacks on abortion, attacks on contraception, attacks on bodily autonomy in the reproductive context without connecting it to what we're seeing with attacks on on trans people. I mean, these are inextricable fights, both in terms of how they're being deployed by the right and in terms of the demands to properly resist them from the left to the extent we have an interest in doing so, which which I do question sometimes. And I think when we look at the anti-abortion movement in the United States, it has many goals at its core. It's obviously not about life or humanity. It's about power. It's about control. It too is a state building project and a certain narrative function, let's say. And so when we think about, well, what happens when Roe falls and why is it that we're seeing the sort of culmination of uh, the movement to overturn Roe coincide with the escalation of attacks on trans people. And I think that's, I mean, that's for many reasons. One is that overturning Roe was never the end of that movement. It's uh, one that will continue to manifest in ways that demands the state to intervene in the sort of way in which we are able to conceptualize and control our bodies. And reproduction is one aspect of that. It's one huge aspect of that, but there's many more because control over the body and sexuality and the family are integral to uh, the rise of a right fascist government. And that is obviously what many people are invested in. So we have to understand that, you know, the ways in which a post-Roe world 
looks in the United States are, are, are going to be sort of manifest in multiple attacks on bodily autonomy, including with respect to ability to self-determine how one looks, how one engages their desire, and how one, you know, sort of accesses healthcare to, to connect with their body. And so this has a multitude of implications for people, um, regardless of reproductive capacity and interest and regardless of trans or cis status. And then, you know, I also think that, you know, in addition to, you know, the movement to abolish Roe not ending there and thereby being inextricable from attacks on, on trans people, you know, all of these sort of efforts to define the legitimate body, you know, whether that's in the context of reproduction or in the context of some other aspect of bodily self-determination, that is sort of always a part of our legal discourse and, and structure. And so I think one of the things that's happened over the last 50 years in particular is that we've been very deliberately sort of separated from and fragmented from each other as, as, in, as individuals and as movements. And unfortunately, what that has meant is that we are fighting very well-coordinated attack on our bodily autonomy that has weaponized us against each other. And so I, I, I worry that what happens moving forward is that our 50 years of failing to connect the ways in which our bodies and lives have been constrained and attacked means that we're going to look at a post-Roe world, a world the law is even more explicitly designed to enact violence and, and not have the tools to see how we've been sort of very deliberately pitted against each other. And so it's it's not just that the movement is sort of designed to go beyond row and sort of have a next demon, have a next target. It's that it's always been about building state power in very particular ways. And it's leveraged internal divisions in order to effectively do that. And so we're coming at this moment at a very significant disadvantage because we've all been sort of played, not to say that we've all been sort of equally played in that process, but, but certainly our mainstream movements have. And, and that, I think, is a real challenge for this next period. The only solution to the sort of death by atomization that Chase is describing is solidarity. Given the extremity of the situation, the lack of support trans people and particularly trans youth, have received from the broader public is deeply concerning. As I said at the top of the show, one of the reasons we keep hitting this topic so hard is that others are not. And frankly, that really scares me. I'm so disheartened by the lack of response to these attacks on on trans people. So I think just as one example, I mean, Alabama was able to pass a felony ban on health care, potentially punishing doctors and parents with up to 10 years in prison for providing or supporting trans people and accessing medically necessary and life-saving medical treatment. And there was almost no response. And most people didn't know what happened. It barely registered on any mainstream news. It was sort of shocking to think that in 2016, North Carolina can pass a bathroom ban, which is terrible, but by comparison, nowhere near as severe and devastating as what Alabama does. 
and this national outcry in 2016 over, over HB2 in North Carolina. And here we have this felony ban on healthcare and it's crickets. And I think partly it's a, a product of sort of how oversaturated we are with the horrible news and continued collapse um, in the midst of, you know, ongoing pandemic and, you know, the realities of the further erosion of structures that people had, for better or worse, believed in to protect them. And so I think it's partly just, you know, there is an oversaturation of devastation and exhaustion. And so you have 2016, you have an outcry over a bathroom ban, whereas, you know, we had two sports bills, three bathroom bans and a felony ban on healthcare passed almost in a week and almost no response at all. So partly it's just the way that we're living in this moment. So in some ways, it, it is about trans people and it's also just about the fact that we've been exhausted into, I don't know, non-responsiveness. And that is obviously one goal of people who want to see us die. But then there's the trans-specific reality, which is that people still feel very comfortable debating transness as if you can have a general conversation about whether, it, you know, there's two sides to the question of whether people should be trans at all. And so if that's a legitimate discourse, if that's a legitimate thing to talk about, then there's no room for outcry because so many people have internalized, at least to a degree, that there might be some merit to the idea that we should stop people from being trans. And that is very much still pervading our public imagination, that stopping transness is a legitimate goal. And when that's out there, then I think, you know, you can see that there's a real hesitation, including among the very progressive left, to really, you know, fight in solidarity with trans people. That comes from a true resistance to the idea that transness is something to be held and celebrated and embraced. And that is in part because everyone has internalized these norms of binary sex bodies and I think many people have not done their individual work, not to mention the structural work to be done, to sort of ask themselves, like, am I truly afraid of the possibility that comes when, you know, we might be able to be more capacious than we're told? I think that gives a lot of people a lot of anxiety, including people on the left. I am just going to briefly interrupt us with your weekly reminder that Truthout is a nonprofit news organization that only exists because of listeners and readers like you. If you keep track of the independent news landscape, you know that we have lost some great publications in recent months and years. Journalists are facing layoffs across the industry. Here at Truthout, we are still hanging on, but I am not going to lie to you all. It is a struggle. The media landscape has been engineered to wipe out anything that isn't owned by the very people who are screwing us all over. Corporate algorithms are hurting us, but we are still here providing award-winning news and analysis that I believe helps to fuel and uplift our movements. Truthout has not laid anyone off during the pandemic. We are a union shop and we have the best family and sick leave policies in the industry. So if you think all of that is worth fighting for, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today. Or maybe even become a sustainer, because truth be told, those people are the reason we are still here. Thanks so much, and back to the show.
So what does it mean to protect and defend trans youth at such a time? When I think about what it, what does it look like to truly protect and defend trans youth in this moment of outright assault and devastation, I mean, I think first and foremost, we have to sort of protect and defend survival systems. Like we should be ensuring healthcare for everyone. We should be defending access to housing in the midst of all of the many collapses of affordable housing. We need to be canceling student loans. I mean, there's there are sort of material things that need to happen on a structural level that ultimately are are sort of integral to the survival of of so many communities. And so I I mean I don't wanna I don't wanna ignore that those things are sort of central to the fight for trans justice because they absolutely are. I also think that, you know, we all need to be having conversations in our lives to shift this legitimization of the idea that transness is bad and that therefore trans people can be constituted as this monstrous other that then allows for these anti-trans laws, policies, and discourses to flourish, which means parents and caregivers need to be changing their orientation towards the sexing of their children. That doesn't mean everyone needs to, you know, raise their children without uh, gender. It's more that we need to be orienting ourselves towards the possibility that the young people in our care can decide who they are in more expansive and exciting ways and that that's not a threat to anyone's order of how they understand themselves, their family, or society. Um, Because if we're continuing to exert this anxiety in the micro sense, then it's going to continue to be constituted in the macro sense. And and then I think we just need to to show up. I mean, kids are really in trouble here. I mean, you know, our, our kids are in trouble in a lot of ways, you know, like as a parent, like, we have a pandemic that is, you know, there, our government does not care to manage. And then we have gun violence in schools. I mean, we're sending our kids to school every day, worried about whether they are going to get COVID, um, whether they're going to get shot. <laughs> and yet the most salient discourse that we seem to be having about schools and safety is whether or not kids can read about the history of this country truthfully and see books with trans kids in them or same-sex parents. Like, we have a serious problem (laughs) and we're not going to solve it tomorrow. And we're also not going to solve it if we don't really sort of conceptualize what it is. And it's bigger than just, oh, are people afraid to have their kid be near a trans person or see same-sex couples? I mean, this is way bigger and more structural than that. It's about sort of how there is a sort of hundreds and hundreds of years investment in ensuring that power is protected in certain ways. And unfortunately, I think that trans people will continue to be a canary coal mine. And if we are not properly engaging in the fight to defend trans youth, before we know it, you know, we're going to see how much it was never about trans young people and it was about building the structures for fascism. And you can see that all over the world in a multitude of ways. And yet here we are acting as if the legitimate conversation to have is like, what is the developmentally appropriate age for people to learn about transness? It's like, no, that's not the conversation. Just like the conversation isn't about how many doors are unlocked at a Texas elementary school when someone walks in and murders 20 kids. You know, I think we're just always having the wrong conversation. And that's why we are always going to be living under such extreme violence.
I appreciate those words. And I also appreciate a tremendous resource that was recently released by Interrupting Criminalization. A brief called We Must Fight in Solidarity with Trans Youth includes a wealth of information, including a glossary, that aims to help organizers make links between the criminalization of care for trans youth across all our struggles. The brief outlines who is responsible for the current assault on trans people, who benefits, and explains how people can join the fight to challenge the criminalization of trans health care, support trans people seeking care, and connect the criminalization of gender-affirming health care to broader calls for abolition. I wanted to share these words from the brief, which feel especially crucial to me in this moment. Never treat trans existence as up for debate. Advocating for space in newspapers, universities, and so on for cis people to debate issues of life and death for trans people leads to trans death. Eliminationist campaigns should not get platformed. We need more space for trans journalists, writers, filmmakers, artists, scholars, and organizers to share their work and engage with one another. I know these ongoing attacks are extremely disheartening, but I can honestly say that for me, it feels a lot better to be inside the struggle against something terrible than to merely bear witness to it. There is a lot of hope to be found in this moment, and a great deal of it can be found by connecting with other people and doing work that needs to be done. To me, as as awful as things are and feel and as painful as it is sort of to do this work and feel like, gosh, like things are just getting worse, I still show up to the work every day with such an unbelievable amount of love for my people, both my colleagues and my community. And so it does give me hope to just get to be proximate people who continue to find a way to make me laugh, where we can make sure that we are taken care of. It it gives me hope to watch people just throw down and show up. And to me, that looks like, hey, I'm going to Venmo you uh, $50 so you eat well. It looks like uh, making sure people are fed and housed and loved and celebrated in our communities. Um, And that's, you know, that's going on always around me. And that always gives me hope even under the most despairing and depressing of circumstances, people find ways, especially queer people, to, to be fabulous, to be loving, um, to be innovative and creative. And so at the end of the day, you know, the state is going to do what the state is going to do. But I know that people that I love and care about and learn from know how to create survival systems outside I mean, and our state should be taking care of us in ways that they're not, but I am, it does give me hope to know that there are blueprints that we can follow, stories that we can listen to, and people who will continue to ensure that their people are loved, protected, fed, housed, and all the things that we need. It's Pride Month which was already a fraught time for a lot of us, given how commercialized Pride's once radical traditions have become. 
it's going to be even more irksome to see the corporate floats and pinkwashing of law enforcement in the military while trans people are under attack and most of the U.S. looks the other way. But as Chase reminded me, the celebration of queer and trans stories and communities is deeply important. It's so hard in Pride where there's this sort of things are so sanitized and everything is sort of said through this lens of reductive celebration. And it's really easy to sort of dismiss, especially in this moment where, and I do this all the time, to sort of dismiss the utility of Pride because it's become overly corporatized, overly reductive. You have just everyone, you know, saying love is love. You're like, what is that? What are you talking about? And at the same time, like, there, there is something really important about holding each other in love and celebration. And so I don't want to lose the good parts of pride and all of my criticism of it. Because at the end of the day, our love for our transness, our love for our people is, is actually going to be such a beautiful and sustaining part of, of moving forward. And so similarly, I'm not a huge fan of like my existence is my resistance because that that isn't my political analysis, but or and I should say, our love, our joy, our celebration, our tools, our stories are worthy of celebration, and they are actually incredibly effective forms of resistance to many forms of state violence, which are incredibly familiar to so many communities. And so, I do want to hold on to that as we are in and moving into June. As an activist and journalist, I am in the habit of desperately trying to warn people about major threats like fascism, climate change, and COVID. And I will tell you, I don't do this because it is fun or widely appreciated because it is neither. By the time I am running out of breath, I know most people are not going to listen. But I know from experience that some people will. And I know that we do not need everyone on board to make a difference. But when it comes to defending trans rights and lives, we definitely need a lot more people than we have right now. It feels as though a we-can't-save-everyone mentality has set in, and a lot of people are simply being sacrificed. People who are especially vulnerable to COVID are being abandoned as normalcy grinds forward. Imprisoned people are being left to a crisis of ever-worsening conditions amid an ongoing global pandemic. And trans people are being sacrificed to the vilification, dehumanization, criminalization, and violence of Republicans. I want to warn people, in no uncertain terms, that liberals and leftists will regret this abandonment. But I also want to remind us all that it doesn't have to be this way. We all make choices every day about what we will talk about, what we will act upon, what we will grieve, and what we will ignore. You all have choices to make around what your role will be in the fate of trans people in this historic moment. There will be no do-overs. For now, the corporate media has made its choice. But as we have seen in the past, the media can be forced to address a subject when everyday people refuse to ignore it. The Democratic establishment has made their choice, 
but our power does not come from them. It comes from us. We have to be as uncompromising in our commitment to life and self-determination as our enemies are to the surveillance, control, and annihilation of their targets. My ask for this week is that we all sit with what that demands of us and check out Interrupting Criminalization's brief on supporting trans youth. Share the brief with organizations you work with or respect. Share its lessons with your children and talk about it with your friends. Tell them that you are honoring Pride Month by figuring out how you can support trans youth and invite them to join you. This is an overwhelming time, but I am asking all of you to consider how you can learn more, how you can support people taking action, and how you can be constructive in this crisis. Because young people, and trans youth in particular, are fighting a brave battle right now. Last year, Dozens of students at Temple High School in Texas walked out after a transgender teen revealed she had been forced to change in a janitor's closet and denied access to girls' locker rooms and bathrooms. This month, youth in Portland organized a rally downtown in support of trans youth and trans rights. In April, hundreds of students joined a walkout at East High School in Salt Lake City to protest HB 11 a bill that bans transgender girls from joining sports teams that align with their gender identity. In March, students in Atlee High School in Hanover County, Virginia, walked out after their school agreed to allow the Alliance Defending Freedom to review the county's equal education policy. I have talked a bit about the ADF's handiwork and attacks on trans people in this episode, but it's also worth mentioning that the Southern Poverty Law Center has listed the ADF as a hate group. So right now, some of the scariest forces in this country are lined up against trans children, depicting their very existence as a threat to the social order and stoking violence against them. And who is standing up to that violence? While there are obviously adult advocates like Chase doing great work, the bulk of the courage that we are presently witnessing comes from trans youth themselves and their peers. I want to say to those young people, If they are listening, I am so proud of you and so grateful for you. But I also understand that you deserve more support. I am sorry people have not shown up for you like they should. But I promise that those of us who care will not give up. And I believe that more people will be inspired by your work and follow your lead. To everyone else, I want to say it's time to show up for these young people. And I hope that some of you listening will be among those who do. I want to thank Chase Strangio for joining me to talk about attacks on trans youth and what we can do about them. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truth Out. And Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. 
We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.